So we know the answer to this question. I'm going to sing it rather than say it. Tell me who's that rider? Anybody know the answer? The answer is John the Revelator. Tell me who's that rider? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that rider? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. That's where we find ourselves today. Right? So um, you're going to get a chance to clap along and maybe even sing a little bit. That song's going to come up again before our sermon is over. But um, back before the holidays, before the season of Advent began, we started a series of sermons through the book of Revelation. Who wrote it? John the Revelator, of course. Who's the writer? Um, So... uh, that's the way that, that this uh, African-American spiritual answers the question. John the Revelator, right? The one who wrote the book of Revelation. We're picking up that series in chapter 8. Don't worry. We'll do a little bit of review. We'll start by remembering together why the book of Revelation exists. It exists because of two crises a future crisis and a present crisis. If we want a a snippet of information about that future crisis, well, we have to listen to the first verse of our song. Tell me who's that writer? John the Revelator, tell me who's that writer? John the Revelator, tell me who's that writer? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. Here's the first verse. You know, God walked down in the cool of the day and he called Adam by his name and he refused to answer because he was naked and ashamed. Tell me who's that writer. You know how it goes, right? But there's the first verse. It's interesting, it's a song about John the Revelator, the one who wrote the end of the Bible, the last book in the whole Bible, the book of Revelation. But the first verse reaches all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. It treats it like it's one big story, one big plan that God has. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But notice how it it imagines this future crisis that every human being has to ask the question, how will I endure coming face-to-face with the God who created me? And so that's where the, this song begins, right? As Genesis said, God came down, and he called Adam's name, and Adam hid because he knew himself to be ashamed, ashamed of ignoring God, ashamed of pretending that he could find a way better for himself without God. There's a crisis that every one of us is headed toward. If I have taken God lightly, if I've treated him like he is a game to play, if I have treated him like something that I could choose or not choose according to my preferences, will I be ready to meet him? 
When he calls my name, will I be ashamed? Will I want to hide from his presence and his face? Or is there something that can put me on the right side of relationship with him, on the right side of his expectations about truth and righteousness and justice that should shape the way that I think and live and everything that I do? If so, I'm ready for that future crisis. Christians are those who have prepared for that future crisis by trusting Jesus to put us on the right side of that relationship with God, to make us ready to meet him face to face and not be ashamed. Not because we're proud of anything we've done, but because God is proud of everything Christ has done. And yet, Christians, maybe prepared for that future crisis, face a present crisis. And that's why John the Revelator wrote this book. Get people ready for that future crisis and and to get God's people ready for the present crisis. Trusting Jesus is hard in a society that tells you you can't be a good citizen and confess Jesus as Lord. You can't be a good neighbor and follow Christ as your Lord. That was the message in the Roman Empire in the first century. The book of Revelation exists. Are we remembering this a little bit from a few weeks ago? (laughs) It exists to help people endure that present crisis and prepare for that future crisis. And it does this by captivating us with truth about Jesus. And in the book of Revelation... That truth is communicated through symbols. So let's take a minute to remember how the book of Revelation works. It uses detailed descriptions of symbols. And those symbols represent realities. Now, Oftentimes you, you can get tripped up here by thinking that Revelation is directly describing, giving detailed descriptions of reality, when in fact it's giving detailed descriptions of symbols that represent realities. And so we have to do harder work and, and to ask the question of, oh, what symbol is being described and what, what reality in our world does that symbol represent? Uh, that's how Revelation works. Now, in just a moment... We'll hear Tom Brinks, through a video, read this morning's scripture passage. It's from Revelation chapter 8. And um, you're going to hear lots of symbols mentioned there. Seals. Remember John the Revelator? What did he write? The book of the seven seals. A scroll sealed up with seven wax seals so that it couldn't be opened until the time was right. And its contents couldn't be revealed except by the person who is worthy to open the scroll. And we'll hear a number, another symbol, trumpets. Now, when you hear the word trumpet, Tom's going to read trumpet. And you're going to think, you know, brass instrument, marching band. Nope. Think warfare. Um, If you're Jewish, you're going to think first of a trumpet made from a ram's horn. If you're Roman, you're probably thinking of a brass bugle. Calling us to attention. Something amazing and important is happening. And then one other symbol, 
the most important one in the whole book. It's a lamb. Let's listen as Tom reads our scripture passage for us today. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings, and lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a minute and pray together. Lord, our prayer this morning is brief, but it's important. We're asking you to wake us up as a trumpet sounding on a battlefield to call the attention of every soldier to what is about to happen. Wake us up. Redirect our attention to Christ. Amen. So, um, I have a confession to make. The confession is twofold. First, I hate typos more passionately than I should. Second, I made one. So, here we go. That should say how we got to the seventh seal. And it's just really hard for me to stay focused right now. (laughs) Right? So, being a perfectionist... Typos. It's like somebody's just scraping their fingernails over a chalkboard. The whole, and it's going to be up there for like 12 slides. <laughs> and every one of them, same typo. <sighs> no. Okay. Well, how did we get here? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. And uh, we're picking up kind of mid-story, chapter 8, and the first thing we hear is the Lamb opened the seventh seal. How do we get there? So, quick recap. Chapter 1, a vision of Jesus. Jesus reveals himself, wants to make something known to John, the revelator. <laughs> and John writes it down, and the first thing you start with is a vision of Who is Jesus? The best way to prepare for the crisis is to see Jesus. Which crisis? Both of them. The best way to get ready to meet God face to face so that you won't have to hide and feel naked and ashamed before him is to to see Jesus in all of his glory. And the best way to be ready for the present crisis of what it's like to trust Jesus in a society that says, well, you just can't be a good person and keep following Jesus as Lord. You've got to compromise. Well, the best way to get ready for the crisis is to see Jesus. So that's where we start in chapter 1. And chapters 2 and 3 are letters that Jesus speaks. John, write these down. Send these letters out to these seven churches scattered across the Roman Empire, area that we today would call Turkey, right? Help these churches be ready to face the challenges that are in front of them. And then we get another vision 
in chapter 4. This time it's, it's the vision. Well, it's a vision of God. Actually, it's, he's never described. The symbol used is a throne, a vision of a throne. And the one sitting on it is holding a scroll. I call it the scroll of destiny. What's written on this scroll? Well, it's God's plan for the universe. And it's a plan that ever since the beginning has been building toward a climactic moment of judgment and redemption. Climactic moment of purifying his good world from all the distortions that evil and sin and human rebellion against him have brought into it. We see a a preface of that great day of judgment in the crucifixion of Christ. He's the first person to ever endure that great day of judgment. He endured it before anybody else. But building toward a great day of redemption when God, Luke has already led us through it, wipes away every tear, heals every scar, magnifies every good blessing and gift that he intends his people to have forever. All of the universe has been building toward that great climax since the very beginning. That's what's written on this scroll, and that's the vision you have in chapter 4. But remember, as we turn to chapter 5, there's a question. Who is worthy to open this scroll? Who can tell us with confidence that God's plan is going to be carried out? Who can make us know with certainty that there is a way to survive the coming crisis of judgment and and stand on the side of redemption? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer is lamb. The lamb is worthy. And so another vision of Christ in chapter Five, And then the lamb begins to open the seals of the scroll. Now, hmm, I hate to burden you, but can I talk about email for a minute? I hate typos. I also hate email. <laughs> I love people. So, you know, don't think, oh, Jimmy hates me because I sent him an email. No, I love people. I just don't like the way that email is kind of constantly screaming for your attention. Now, a lot of that has to do with my own uh, insecurities, right? If I could ignore the screams, everything would be okay. But if you're like that, I'm sorry to bring it up. But here's how it relates to seals and scrolls. How does email help us? Understand the book of Revelation. Well, it's like this. Email is the Antichrist. No, that's not what I was going to say. Um, sorry, sorry, lost myself for a minute. It's not like that at all. You know how you can set up your email so that even before you open an email, you get a little glimpse into what it's going to say? So you can see the subject line and... I like mine set up so I can see kind of the first sentence. Because if it's, I don't want to deal with it yet, I don't want to see more than that first sentence. But I don't want to be thinking worst case scenario if the subject line says, you know, apocalypse imminent. Um, you know, 
Jimmy, you're supposed to preach 12 times on Sunday. Are you ready? You know, like, ah, let me read enough of that email just to get a summary of where it's going before I even open it. Well, document, legal documents in the, in the first century worked that way too in the Roman Empire. So you write all the text of the document and it's not time to enact it yet. Maybe it's a will or maybe it's a contract that depends on this event happening. And so we seal it up until it's time for it to be opened. But on the back of the last piece of that scroll, we write a summary of what the document says. So that even before the seals are broken and it's open, we can read kind of an overview of where it's going. Well, that's what happens in Revelation chapter 6. As Jesus starts to break these six seals, we, haven't, we can't open the scroll. We can't see what God's plan for the destiny of the universe is until the seventh seal is opened. But in chapter 6, we can get a preview, right? There's a little summary. There's the subject line. There's the first sentence of the email, so to speak. And as you read chapter 6, what do you find? Well, it's, it's not great news. Four horsemen, four kinds of suffering coming into this world. The fifth seal is broken. And Christians who are killed because of their faith in Jesus are crying out, Lord, when will you do justice in the world? And the sixth seal is broken and, and people start saying, would the mountains fall on us? Because I'd rather a mountain fall on me than have to face God and the Lamb on the day of their wrath. I'm not ready for that future crisis. I'd rather be buried under a mountain of rubble than meet Jesus when I am naked and ashamed. And then, because that's enough to discourage anyone, in chapter 7 we come up for air. In chapter 7 we get this vision. Oops. I ran past it, didn't I? Assurance because of the Lamb. First we learn that there's this crowd of people um, so big that no one can count them who are going to be kept safe through all of this. So all the suffering and fear and trouble in chapter 6, as those six seals are broken, it won't overcome the work of the Lamb. Why? Verse 10 says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He is able to make people secure. He is able to rescue them from that coming crisis. And then we read about the Lamb again at the end of chapter 7. John, the revelator, asks someone he sees in his heavenly vision, who are these people that are being redeemed by the work of the Lamb? And the answer is, these are the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the Lamb suffered, but the Lamb lives. And the chapter ends this way. The lamb in the middle of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. And that's how God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the end of chapter 7. And that's where we are right now as we begin with chapter 8. 
Then the lamb, that lamb, who suffered so that others could be saved, that lamb whose blood can wash away every blemish, every tremor of shame from your past and present and future, that lamb opens the seventh seal. What I want us to do this morning is get ready to look more deeply at chapter 11. We're going to do that by remembering some things about the work of the Lamb that surface in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. Let's remember the Lamb. Let's remember what the Lamb has done. The first little hint we get of the work of the Lamb in this chapter happens in verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Don't worry, I'm not going to sit here for half an hour, right? But think of it, right? We've just come through chapter 6 with all these reasons to weep and wail and mourn and and this this image of of mountains crashing down to hide us from, from the anger the Lamb would rightly have at those who have misrepresented Him as false ambassadors. And that's wailing and it's crashing and it's noisy. And then we came through chapter 7 with the wiping away of tears. Do you think we'll be singing for joy in that moment? Yeah. (laughs) But instead of noise and rejoicing and celebrating, we get this image of silence. What do we do with that image? Well, the Old Testament does two things with the image of silence. So if you want to understand what John the Revelator wrote, the first thing you need to know is this book is full of detailed descriptions of symbols that represent realities. And the next thing you need to know is that almost all of its symbols come from the Old Testament. Silence is a symbol in the Old Testament, but it's a symbol for two different kinds of things. In Habakkuk chapter 2, we get this example of... um, Silence as a symbol. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20 says this The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Everything in the chapter prepared us for that by talking about speechless idols. Gods and goddesses made out of stone and rock that human beings decide instead of worshiping the God who made the world, we would rather worship a God we make. We'd rather attribute the existence of the world and all good things that come to us in this world to 
this stick or that stone than the God who actually is. Not everything in the world is good. Who's going to save us and rescue us from the hard things, the awful things, the evil things? This stick, this stone can do it. And God says, the sticks and the stones are speechless. You can ask them any question, they will never answer you. So the silence, the silence here is a warning. Do you know how much greater you are than the stone you have carved and made into your God? That is how much greater God is than you. Now, you and I don't carve stones and sticks anymore. But we trust things other than God to keep us safe, don't we? You know how how much greater you are than a dollar bill (laughs) and a stack of dollar bills? God is that much greater than you. Stand, be warned. If, If his notions of justice and righteousness and truth are so much greater than ours, don't presume that you can stand in his presence and teach him anything about right and wrong. Don't presume that you can stand in his presence and say, I know I did these bad things, but I did them for these good reasons. That's okay, right? I know I made some mistakes, but I was sincere. Don't presume. Be silent. It's a silence of warning. But the Old Testament uses the same symbol in a very different way. Sometimes silence gets interrupted by rejoicing. Don't take my word for it. Zechariah chapter 2. God's people are undergoing judgment and punishment for worshiping idols. And God says, I have good news for you. I'm going to bring all of that to an end. And he says, verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, because I am coming to dwell in your midst. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people too. And I will dwell in your midst. And you will know, you will know that I am God. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's a totally different kind of silence, isn't it? That's a silence that's getting ready to just explode in joy and singing. And we get to this vision of Jesus breaking the seventh seal. And the first thing we see is silence. Is it the silence of warning or is it the silence of getting ready to rejoice? Everything depends on the work of the Lamb. If we're trusting the work of the Lamb, we can rejoice. If you take time to read through Revelation chapter 8, in its entirety. We didn't read the whole thing this morning. You would also come across another powerful symbol. This time it's a numerical symbol. 
The phrase one-third keeps coming up over and over and over again. Disastrous things are happening all over the earth. And one-third of the earth is burned up, according to verse 7. And a third of the trees are burned up, according to verse 7. And a third of the sea becomes blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And a third of the rivers were turned to bitter water so that when people drank from them, they died. And a third of the moon's light went out. How do you turn off a third of the moon's light? Remember, this is not a direct description of reality. It's a description of a symbol. The symbol is that of darkness. And a third of the sun's light is taken away so that a third of the darkness of the night, right, a third of the light of the day is darkened. And likewise, a third of the night. What's happening here? We're being told that that crisis in the future, that day of judgment that's coming, is universal in scope. It's going to affect the entire earth and the whole human race. But while it's universal in scope, it is limited in its impact because something protects the other two-thirds. And we're meant, every time we hear the one-third, 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 we're meant to ask a question, well, well, what's protecting and preserving the other two-thirds? Something makes it possible to be on this planet, to be a real human being, to be surrounded by a world that is broken and yet survive when the day of judgment comes. What is it? It's the work of the Lamb. It's the work of the Lamb. See, here's a hint about reading the book of Revelation. It is fair to ask questions about what does this detail mean and what does that detail mean? But over all those questions is worship of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Even if I don't know why one-third was chosen rather than one-eighth or one-quarter, I know that the work of the Lamb is what makes it possible for anything to survive the day of God's judgment. I know that the work of the Lamb is what makes it possible for the two-thirds or the seven-eighths or the three-quarters or whatever fraction we had used to be redeemed. And I honor the Lamb and I love Christ and I worship Him and I want to remain faithful to Him because He has made a way for the word some. That's where we'll end. In chapter 11, after this seventh seal has been opened, And seven trumpets were hand out. And six of those trumpets have been blown, announcing that God's plan is being carried out. Then we're told this. 11, 
verse 9, for three and a half days, symbol, what does it represent? Half of seven. <laughs> so, long time, but not infinitely long. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at the dead bodies of the Lord who is crucified and his people who have been martyred alongside him. And they will refuse to let them be placed in a tomb and they will rejoice over them. Some will rejoice that Christ has been murdered. Some will rejoice that his church is being persecuted. Some will rejoice that Christians are dying. Some, but not all. Some, but not all. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will reject Jesus. But if you've been listening well to the book of Revelation, you have heard that the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll is worthy because he was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Some from the languages and tribes and peoples and nation will reject Christ and rejoice when his people suffer. But not all because Christ has redeemed us. Some will not know him. Some will reject him. Some will be ashamed when they meet him face to face, but not all. Because a great multitude made up of people from every language and nation and tribe is being drawn to Christ. Because they see in him one who redeems without lowering his standards of justice and righteousness at all. He maintains those standards and yet makes a way for us to be preserved. The only way to be ready for the future crisis that comes is to be a follower of the Lamb, is to have your robe washed white in His blood. That's the symbolic language that John the Revelator uses. To say that not everyone will be afraid to meet this Lamb. Because the Lamb has done everything that's necessary for us to sing after the silence and to stand before Him as one who sings and rejoices in His grace and redemption.